Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. GM, I'm Dan Roberts. I'm Stacey Elliott. I'm Andrew Hayward. I'm Kate Irwin. And I'm Stephen Graves. And this is... GM from Decrypt. Okay, GM to Andrew Hayward, making your co-hosting debut. What's up, Andrew? GM, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. And you're making your debut uh, for something very, very, very much in your wheelhouse. Um, In all your time with us, you have just been all over every inch of the NFT boom and now it's sort of, I don't want to say changing. I mean, you, you you could describe it better than I, but there was the big honking, loud mainstream NFT moment that passed. But as we know, it's not the case that, that NFTs are dead, far from it. But the whole NFT space is sort of now shifting to a new era. And Zora is a good example of that. We've got the co-founder of Zora on today, Jacob Horn. Yeah, I mean, the the big speculative bubble of last year and early this year has really popped, um, you know, but NFTs are still selling. They're just not commanding the crazy prices and the crazy demand. And I think Zora is an interesting example of a company that really is focused on tools for creators. Like they may not get the big headlines as a marketplace like OpenSea mm. or Magic Eden, but they are really providing like critical infrastructure for people to come into Web3 you know, mint their stuff and get it out to the world and potentially build communities around it too. Yeah. And that's, that's dead on that, you know, it doesn't maybe get the big headlines that the others do. Uh, when everything was riding high and it was kind of peak NFT trading speculative moment, I feel like I grouped everything together in terms of the marketplaces. You know, there was OpenSea, Nifty Gateway, Rarible, Zora, Foundation, uh, even though you know there was OpenSea and then there's kind of everything else um, and it had such a big <laughs> runway and, and a lead, it seems to me that Zora, and I'm sure they're not the only one, but but um, they're the one that I have recently you know gotten up to speed on thanks to your coverage of this shift. But they're sort of, uh, you know, we'll, we can press him on this. I'm sure he wouldn't say Pivot is right, but it seems to me that they want to also be now uh, a place to create DAOs. Uh, they don't just want to be branded as an NFT marketplace. Yeah, well, I I think they got kind of, uh, you know, lumped in with that stack of marketplaces. I think their focus has always been on, you know, letting creators build like internet owned brands. And, Mm. you know, that that started in like decentralized fashion and like, you know, really experimental things a couple of years ago. And then it went through NFTs. And now it's like, how can we how can we use NFTs to form DAOs and build communities and sustain communities, too? So, you know, they're really kind of leading that right now. That's awesome. Something we're thinking about at Decrypt Media as well. Uh, (laughs) Cool. Well, let's bring him on. Jacob from Zora. Okay. Jacob Horn from Zora, GM. Thanks for joining us. GM. Happy Friday. How you doing? Happy Friday. Welcome on. Uh, Let's start this way. Are NFTs dead? What do you say to the critics who say the bubble popped? NFTs are a thing of the past. 
Uh, some NFTs might be dead, sure. <laughs> but I think the the technology is still alive and well and ever evolving. So um, I think, you know, we're going through the usual period you'd see after like a massive mania and maybe mis misunderstanding or mismatches in expectations of what the te like technology is today and what it can do. But I would say um, it is alive and well in many good pockets of the space. You know, in seriousness, I mean, in terms of Zora's reputation, what it's known for, I think for a long time, we, or at least I should speak for myself, I thought of Zora in the class of NFT marketplaces, you know, OpenSea, Nifty Gateway, Rarible, Foundation. There was a moment there where there were a bunch and everyone was competing. Uh, but lately, fair to say that, that Zora is kind of moving away from that branding and, and maybe you never thought of you guys as kind of competing with those other marketplaces. Yeah, I think um, our tooling is mostly focused around the primary market. So it's like, how do you help an artist or a community or a brand bring their work on chain and then distribute it and sell it as best as possible, um, which is predominantly minting. Um, so a, a lot of our tools are, are dedicated around that particular part of the life cycle. I think in our early phases, we were like, oh, we may as well own the whole experience and have the secondary market as part of that. But I think over time, we've got more opinionated and found a lot of success in the primary market specifically. So I've just been going deeper and deeper on that, that part of the tool set um, and actually starting to make it easier for you to plug in and sell your works on many marketplaces um, for the secondary. Um, so that, that's been like a, an evolution we've, we've been focused on for probably the past like six or seven months now. That's been working quite well. Yeah, on the topic of tools for creators and minting, you know, I wanted to talk about Nouns Builder, which is something mm -hmm. that you guys just launched recently. Uh, you and Guy spoke about it recently, but I'd love to have you tell us about it and, and what it does and how it works. Yeah. Um, so Nouns Builder is a tool that makes it very easy for anyone to create their own noun style DAO. Um, we kind of fell in love with the Nouns model. Um, the net, so for those who don't know, NounsDAO is a, a net new form of kind of DAO that you can create on chain. And it's kind of like spoken as the kind of CryptoPunks 2.0. So the way that it was kind of started as a project was 4156 and a group of people um, who are known as the Nounders basically looked at the CryptoPunks model being huge CryptoPunks owners themselves and stuff like that and kind of address a few systemic issues that you see with that structure of project, which I actually think kind of like frames a whole bunch of the mania that we just exited. So like the 10K PFP, very widely known model, which is, okay, we're going to mint out the entire collection on day one. All of the ETH is going to go to, you know, a, a third party team. Uh, and so will the royalties will go to a third party team. And then what we've kind of seen and have been left with is you see the community kind of screaming devs do something because they're in no position to allocate the ETH or put forward the project um, or that IP for the project is actually still owned by the core team. So the community have very limited ability to kind of proliferate and reinterpret and push the art far and wide as possible. So you kind of get left in this kind of tragedy of the commons where anyone who does own the, the NFT doesn't really have the capital or any incentive to kind of push the project forward. And then the team who kind of created it maybe have misaligned incentives because they've maybe you know, raised venture capital and done that in a company, created a separate token. And now it's very hard for that artwork and project to push itself forward. So the Nouns Down model is kind of, a, I would say, a structural answer to maybe these questions, which is 
you know, there's one NFT minted per day. The ETH from that auction goes directly into a treasury that is controlled by the NFT holders themselves. So it's one NFT, one vote. And what that very simple model does is it puts the NFT holders or the community in a position to go, okay, I have this idea for how to push forward the project. I'm going to put that forward as a proposal to the treasury. And then if the rest of the community agrees that treasury is allocated and spent, and now maybe you have a mural that's in, you know, Soho in New York, which happened, or maybe you're sending a noun up into the international space station later in the year, which is happening, or maybe you're funding a, a rose parade float and you start seeing all these ama like amazing kind of projects that are coming from the community and are aligned with pushing forward the art and notoriety and therefore the success. Um, but to create a project like that, it's actually quite hard. Um, so there's a lot of solidity involved and it's a little bit more complex than just deploying your own NFT contract on mainnet. So we, we've spent the time creating nouns builder, which helps anyone just upload their art, configure the settings and press go. And you can have one of these DAOs in, in a matter of minutes. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot in that we, we, we could probably go into, but that's the, that's the high level. Yeah, when we spoke a couple months back about Nouns Builder, you were pretty critical of DAOs. You said, I've seen a lot of tokens. I do not see a lot of organizations. <laughs> uh, and you were praising the Nouns model. So, you know, I'm curious, in your view, what isn't working with many DAOs and how does the Nouns approach fix that? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think um, a lot of the DAOs that we know and love to varying degrees today um, are kind of in DeFi. So and I, I think also there's kind of a dimension at play here, which is, uh, there's VC funded companies and then there's the DAO that gets launched and there's often, it's very hard to distinguish between these two things, but I think what's pretty clear when you look at a lot of DAOs on chain today is empirically, they're not, they're not doing very much. So if you go look at their proposals, you may see the occasional parameter change. You may, or like, uh, a, a new distribution of tokens or something like that. But in terms of the actual activity that the community is putting forward together, it's tightly scoped to just operating that protocol. And there may be very high barriers to entry to get enough tokens to even put forward a proposal. So if you compare this to the nouns model, uh, there's a very low barrier to entry once you have a token to put forward a proposal. So if you have one noun or a delegated a noun, you can put forward a proposal directly on chain at any time. So it's like, theoretically, someone right now could go, I want to put a proposal to transfer the entire treasury to myself, which obviously would get a no vote. But the fact that you can do that is quite radical. But then two, and most importantly, by nature of being an NFT project or an NFT form of ownership, I would posit that the remit of the DAO is much more expansive than just governor protocol. So it's like any proposal that is going to put, push forward the novels or the nounish like meme or ideology or aesthetic is now something that the community can organize and push forward versus in a DeFi DAO, they're tightly scoped to just a protocol. And by being an ERC 20 token, I don't think it fully captures the meme or brand value of that token. So you're not really operating in a context where I think the community can come forward, put forward a proposal to put, you know, a hundred foot unicorn statue in central park or like, a huge compound logo somewhere in the world because the the economic model that those DAOs are kind of based on are fundamentally different. One's very financial and utility driven, one's very meme driven. And I think that has like huge kind of ramifications up and down the stack. So I think like 
yeah, I, I, a lot of these DAOs, I think they're great tokens and they may capture the financial value, but I don't think they're great organizations that are actually, you're seeing communities operating on chain, working together to do many aligned things together, basically. Yeah, let's stick with that, Jacob, because the sort of DAO moment in some ways is actually a parallel to the NFT PFP boom that we talked about earlier, right? I mean, both of these things had an explosion and a moment where people in crypto were gaga for them. You know, there was sort of a DAO time where people were like saying they were in 15 to 20 different DAOs. And then I think things kind of simplified and slowed down and maybe people realized, well, I, I can't be in like, realistically, I can't be in more than four or five and at least not with my time and effort and give them an equal amount of attention. So there was that. But also to your point about, you know, what are they doing? Um, many of them, it's just a financial gain motivated thing. Um, what are the potentials that excite you beyond that? And that's sort of a conversation happening uh, in a broader sense in crypto too right now. The idea that, you know, DeFi can't just be about put your tokens into this protocol or this pool and you'll get more tokens and you'll make more money. It mm -hmm. has to kind of do something beyond that, right? Um I think that's right. Well, I think part of it is maybe DeFi DAOs actually explicitly need to be boring or those DAOs might not need to exist in many cases um, because they can just run autonomously on chain and you're actually trying to minimize the need for a DAO as much as possible. Um, but I think for, for nouns, I guess it's like when you've got a meme-based DAO that you could argue is now in a position where it can capture value from just spreading that meme, it can do many things that a traditional DeFi DAO cannot because it has an economic uh, loop that kind of enforces that. So kind of coming back to the, the statue example, it's like the nouns DAO could put forward a proposal to spend, you know, millions of dollars on a huge monument. And that wouldn't be like a ludicrous marketing expense that might actually increase the value and recognition of that brand. And then what that DAO could potentially do outside of just mean proliferation. So running public infrastructure or, funding public goods and artists and all the things that we're starting to see it actually move into. One use case that we're looking at, you know, it's, it's not like a secret, but um, the idea of a media DAO uh, okay. and or, you know, using NFTs to fund content, uh, to present content. And certainly others have, you know, been looking at this. I mean, Mirror uh, got a lot of attention early on for the idea of um, turning, you know, written essays into fractional NFTs. Mm -hmm. uh, is this something you, you might see more of on Zora, something that you're thinking about, and, and certainly as journalists, uh, you know, we think about trying to use Web3 tools to find a better model. It doesn't yes. just have to be for reporting. I mean, you know, yes. this very podcast, I think, can, can be an NFT, obviously. Exactly, exactly. I think we're gonna, there's a really important distinction here. So there's the organization, which is where the DAO or the nouns model fits in. And then there is the output from that organization. So in this case, it's the podcast, the individual articles, the video and the content. So I think at the article or the unit of work level, this is where I think just minting everything is like, a, sounds so obvious, but is not often carried out where it's just like minting every episode of, of a podcast, minting articles. Like there is, I think, uh, proving to be a, a lot of value captured there. Like when we see additions being minted on Zora, like, you can see a hundred uh, episodes of a podcast minted at 0.01 ETH, which for the collector is like not very much, but for the creator, that's that's one ETH for like, and that's maybe one ETH you might not have got otherwise. 
Uh, and then from like a, I guess from a media or a journalist perspective, you get a lot of amazing tools out of the box, which is you can, you can verify, like, did this actually come from the person? I think it came from, because you can see the address who minted it. You get a timestamp. So that's like important over time. It's like, Hey, this was actually created on, on this date. Um, and then the value capture can go back into the organization, which in a lot of cases can be a traditional company that's you know, minting all of the work they're already doing and maybe capturing more value value for doing so. But if we start moving into a DAO context, well, maybe you actually have people who would traditionally sponsor or donate or be a benefactor can start doing that in a very transparent way in an organization that is also operating publicly and transparently on chain to fund new types of, um, you know, journalism or editorial or whatever content that the DAO finds interesting to itself. So the answer is, but I think it can w work extremely well but there's two different levels. There's minting the specific work itself. And there's how do you bring the organization that's going to carry out the work on chain as well. Now I want to loop back to nouns builder, um, you know, especially in this kind of use case where media might uh, glom onto something like this, you know, how approachable and easy to use is this tool? Is this something that people who are not crypto savvy can get a hang of and use? Yes. So you need a wallet. So that's still like a, that's the primary barrier to entry. But if you have an, enough information to start a Twitter profile, you have enough information to start one of these DAOs. You can just upload your logo, set the name, set the description, press deploy, and it costs about I think, 0.02 ETH to deploy one of these things. And it's all up and running and fully operational within minutes. Um, like it really is that easy. <laughs> there is then the work to communicate what is happening. And you know your community might not be fully familiar with this model. So there's work to do there. But in terms of actually starting one of these DAOs, it's it's as close to as starting a subreddit or a Twitter profile as you could possibly get. Um, so it's yeah, it's quite quite simple to do. And what are some of the most interesting examples that you've seen so far using Nouns Builder? Mm, that's a great question. Um, there's three. There's one called Purple DAO. There's the Builder DAO itself, which we help create. And then there's one called uh, X Nouns. So Part, let's start with Purple DAO. So Purple DAO, um, I'm not sure how many people are familiar with Farcaster, but it's just like emerging social network, um, has an amazing community of developers who are building on top of the protocol and remixing how cars are displayed and stuff like that. So Purple DAO is an entirely community-driven initiative, which is, hey, there's like one, a great meme, like everyone calls this the Purple app. Uh, so there's Let's proliferate the idea of purple apps. And if it's a purple app, it means it's built on the Farcaster protocol, one. But then two, how can we actually put more capital behind the best developers in this space and even towards the protocol eventually, um, just because we want to see it exist. So uh, it was started by a group of some of the most avid community members. Um, and I think it's it's got 45 ETH or had 50 ETH in total capital coming to the treasury already. And now it's starting to spend it on open source developer funding and you know, proliferating and marketing the idea of purple to the broader community. Um, so that's like the first one, which we could go into before the other two. But um, yeah, that, that one's great. Well, it's funny just to interject when you say, you know, obviously you need a wallet, even that step. I mean, I, I think, and you know, Andrew and I have been writing about crypto a long time. Obviously, we we are pretty familiar with these tools. And yet I, I try to always be conscious of the fact that most people still aren't. And even the idea of, you know, buying an NFT, when I try to explain it to folks who don't work in crypto, 
even as I hear myself saying it, I'm like, gosh, that's too many things. I say, well, you know, you just need to go to an exchange and buy a little ETH mm -hmm. and you send it to your MetaMask wallet. You got to have your wallet. And then you go to this separate NFT site and you're probably going to have to convert the ETH into wrapped ETH. And then, and then you're good. And you buy, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, do you feel like the, the UX still has a, a long way to go in general with all these Web3 uh, products? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. Um, but I think, uh, well, one interesting we're seeing with uh, NounsDAO at large and NounsDAO specifically is that you don't need to own any crypto to get paid by the DAO to do work for it. So with things like Prop House, I don't, this would actually be an interesting thing to look at, but I would guess that there are people earning their first crypto um, from getting paid for the work and contributions they're doing to this community, like for these communities. Um, but yeah, generally speaking, I think how you get someone their first crypto is one of the longest standing and most difficult problems that's existed since it started. <laughs> I think free NFTs are actually playing a role here too, but you still need to know how to download a wallet and get it set up to, to receive receive one of these things but, as long as they don't think nfts are a scourge on the on the world and destroying everything yeah i mean that if that's the case then they, they probably weren't on board for some time but um right. the internet had a lot of naysayers and eventually everyone started buying pcs and phones so i think we'll probably get there <laughs> similar barrier to entry though like getting a wallet is to me the equivalent of like getting your first computer it's actually like a really big high friction moment but eventually it becomes an obvious and less scary and even exciting things to, to some extent it's just like something you need um yeah, but um, yeah, so I guess like two of the other DAOs that I think are notable that are interesting and worth mentioning. One is uh, called the Builder DAO. So this was when we launched this tool, we thought it would make sense for uh, like for Zora to dog food and use it and kind of like put our money where our mouth is. So we we're like, well, this is going to be a public protocol on chain there's going to be a lot of developers who are going to want to build on top of it and need maybe capital to do so as well as kind of like putting the message out there and building awareness and funding educational content and stuff like that. So if we're building a tool that makes it easy to build DAOs, it makes sense for one of the first DAOs to be the DAO that owns and controls the whole thing and has that mission. So build a DAO was set up um, with that kind of mission and mandate in mind. And we put up a proposal to NounsDAO to fund that with a thousand ETH to kind of kickstart it and give it the capital to, to do exactly that. Um, so that's, that's been live for, I think it's coming up on a month in a couple of days and um, it's already brought in additional 80 ETH. It's dedicated 170 or 270 ETH to prop house funding. So there's amazing developers and marketers and artists that are being funded to build out the ecosystem. Um, and crucially, it's, it's the thing that's the long-term governor of the protocol itself. So it's not um, Zora controlled over time. It's actually DAO controlled um, in a model that we think actually, you know, is an organizational based thing, not just a flat kind of token multi-sig and snapshot based thing. Um, so that, that's like the second one that I think is like worth, worth mentioning. What was the, the third example that you wanted to mention? Farcaster, right? Uh, so purple is Farcaster, BuilderDAO is oh, the third yeah. one. And then XNouns is like another notable one, which is it kind of took um, XCopy, which is now uh, all artwork in the Creative Commons. So XCopy is like a really prominent artist um, in the NFT space, combined it with uh, Nouns art, 
But the goal is, can we acquire as much X copy art as we possibly can? Because it's very expensive to do so. So it's, it's this weird kind of like blend of there's net new art that's being created, which is kind of interesting to see. But it also has this goal of like, yes, we have this art, but can we also acquire and collect as a community um, NFTs from X copy who they, that community obviously has like a huge amount of love for. Uh, so that, that one's kind of a, a notable example of like a community being like, Hey, let's, uh, let's organize ourselves to go collect things together, um, with new art in between. So yeah, that's probably like the third, the third one, a fourth, which isn't live yet, but, uh, we're seeing a lot of DAOs that are getting ready to do this in January are actually open source tools and projects who are currently basically deriving all of their income from sponsorships from like web three teams who use these tools they're actually going to be transitioning into organizations of this form to see if they can one accrue more capital and then two expand their organization outside of what's often like one to three developers who are just like holding the weight of the entire entire ecosystem of the, on their back and seeing if they can use this model to actually bring in more contributors outside of themselves so if they disappear the project will stay around and have a chance of surviving um, but there's no, there's no live examples of that yet. That's just like something that's coming in January, which will be exciting to see how that actually plays out. But the, that open source funding seems to be a very common theme, um, very early. Nice. Uh, you know, the first time that I wrote about Zora was in mid 2020 covering decentralized fashion brands. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Zora's proposition then was internet owned brands. Yes. How has the mission evolved since then? Uh, well, internet-owned brands sounds very similar to nouns in that it's that is a meme that is a that is a native model that lets you do exactly like that exactly that you can create a brand or what we maybe now call memes that is native to the internet, and you can use crypto to organize and further that. So um, yeah, the, I guess like the kind of the short history is like Saint Fame was the first project that really tried to get at this, which was. Let's call, let's create Saint Fame as a DAO using Aragon. And then let's tokenize uh, the fashion pieces using ERC20 tokens at the time. Um, And this was just like a side project I was working on while I was at Coinbase. I was just like, wow, Uniswap's amazing. This is a really cool tool that gives you the power of an exchange and like a function call. That's crazy. You can't do that on Coinbase. This feels important. Um, And it's like, yeah, how do we remix this project uh, and push it into the DAO side, which was really fascinating to me. When, when we launched it, no one really cared about the DAO. Everyone loved the token side. So it's like, you know, uh, when the decision was like, well, where do we start? Like, if this is going to take a really long time and you have to go deep on a particular dimension, which aspect of this would we start with? And there was so much traction around the token side that that's how we kind of started on the NFT track. Um, but we've always been like itching to get to the DAO piece. So we experimented with, once we did um, our first kind of token release with RAC, we tried the community token and it was interesting, but it wasn't quite there. So it was kind of back down on the NFT tool level. Um, and yeah, I guess like now over the past few months, we're, we're, we really feel confident in the nouns model as being like a very real and what seems to be empirically working answer to the internet owned brand or the collectively owned meme model. And now it's like, okay, what happens if you start to tie those two things together? So it's like, what would it look like if Nouns actually released a addition directly from the DAO? There's no reason it can't do that. Or any other one of these DAOs that are coming online, like 
there's no reason they can't start to collectively mint things via proposal together. So in like the MediaDAO example, you could have, you know, um, MediaDAO, and now it's starting to actually mint and release its podcasts or its videos or its articles directly from the DAO itself. And it's all on chain, all trustless, and you can actually start to see how that can scale into really interesting things over time. Um, so yeah, I'd say our, our mission is being quite consistent. Our attempts at interpreting it and applying it have been very experimental and wide ranging. And I feel like it's been this like squiggle where it's like exploring all the edges. And I feel like we've got it dialed into sweet instead of ESC 20 tokens for physical things, it's pure NFTs and here's how you distribute them. And instead of Aragon DAOs that are controlling Uniswap pools, it's actually nouns DAOs that are just starting to mint using the exact same stuff. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of the, the brief history of how we've, we've actually actively built towards that <laughs> originally stated thing from two and a half years ago. Yeah. Uh, you know, going on this topic of decentralized funding, you know, I, I know that Zora raised $50 million back in May uh, in VC funding. Yes. So this is sort of a two-part question. Uh, the first is, you know, you raised right before the market crashed. Did that kind of feel like Indiana Jones, like sliding under the door, just making it in time? And then the second part is, you know, you raised VC funding last time around. Would you consider doing more decentralized funding, more community-based funding going forward? Yeah, great question. So uh, easy answer to the first one. Yeah, feels Indiana Jones-like in hindsight. I think it made, yeah, I think very lucky with our timing. It set ourselves up well to kind of weather the bear and then think quite aggressively and expansively for how we can push push the space forward with that capital. Uh, and then in answer to the second question, um, yeah, so in the same way we're dogfooding with um, BuilderDAO, I think our, our long-term ideal is that we can bring the entirety of Zora on chain in this model. So it's like, we're getting very good early inklings that one, you can sustain an organization on chain using this model. Now the question, and we've got our first live experiment created by ourselves in this context. For us now it's like, okay, what would it look like to progressively move our treasuries, uh, our treasury and our like protocols and products and brand into this context as well. Um, so when we think about what the, our DAO launch looks like, it, I don't think it looks at all like a traditional ESC20 drop. It might be a much more slow and sustained transition from how do we get our meme into this context? And then how do we start to uh, transition our contributors and employees into a proposal-based model versus a company employee-based model? Um, so that's... Yeah, I, I think our ideal is that Zora is Zora at large is in some noun style DAO over the over the coming year or so. Um, in fact, that's actually a goal we've set for ourselves. It's like Zora is on chain end of 2023. I don't know if we hit that or not, but it's it's a it's a goal that we're kind of put, putting out putting uh putting out to ourselves. Yeah, everyone is DAOing themselves. Um, yeah, you yeah. know, one of the first guests on this podcast uh, was Eric Voorhees of Shapeshift, mm. and you know that company. They would say, "Well, we're no longer a company; we're just a DAO." He's big on saying, "I'm not the CEO because there's no company to be CEO of." Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting. It kind of we're we're witnessing people pushing the potential and the idealism of, "Oh, DAOs are the future of companies," which I don't necessarily fully buy, but I certainly think they can achieve a lot and are interesting. Um, you, you mentioned Jacob, the Farcaster, and you know that Purple DAO comes from from those folks. That's one of many um, new-ish decentralized social media uh, platforms. Mm. You know, there's uh, what Blue Sky's up to, 
supposedly Twitter was going to start using crypto tools, although it hasn't really. And I don't know how big Musk is on doing that. Um, but I see you on Twitter, obviously. And, and so you use that. What's your take in general on, on like, you know, whether I guess crypto people would ever leave Twitter for something else? I should mention there's also Lens Protocol. We just had Stani from Ave on the podcast recently. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's like our conversation about UX. These things are going to have to be pretty easy to use for the mainstream if they're ever going to really grow. Uh, yeah, I think for me, de- decentralized is the wrong word. I think I actually think it's on chain is what mm-hmm. we're really trying to get at here. Like it's, uh, when I hear it, people evolving into DAOs, I actually think it's much more about bringing it on chain necessarily than decentralizing yourself completely out because being on chain unlocks like a huge amount of benefits up and down the stack. Um, so on the DAO side, it's like, well, now you can have many contributors instead of from anywhere in the world, instead of a select group of employees in particular jurisdictions where that's possible. And you can now compensate with on-chain equity or like value instead of off-chain paper stuff. And like, there's just a, a huge amount of benefits from just being on-chain and it may or may not be decentralized. Like you could have teams that are operating fully on-chain, but it's actually like a relatively small number of people, and but it's still a net gain. I kind of think about that on the social media side too. Like um, we're seeing so much amazing developer activity on Farcaster because they know they can't be deplatformed. Like Facebook and Twitter famously switch off their APIs. So this huge community of developers and businesses that started to build on top of this basically disappeared the second that that switch was turned off because all of that functionality was gone. Uh, in Farcaster, by putting it on chain, developers don't have that worry. There's no, like, maybe what would have to happen for everything to go down is that Ethereum would have to disappear, which, you know, while still non-zero, it's like getting increasingly low with every day. Uh, And what that is doing is it's not just the job of Farcaster to figure out these UX issues. You have an increasing, like, kind of um, community of developers who are coming at this UX and value prop um, aspect with their own perspective. And they're on equal footing to the primary Farcaster app with the guarantee that the Farcaster app can't turn them off. So I think uh, that is a really important ingredient paired with there's just enough people, I would say, in crypto who are starting to migrate across and spend a lot of their time on Farcaster where it's like, okay, there's enough of a network starting to form here where it feels sustainable. You have a huge growing uh, developer ecosystem with many different apps and interpretations that come at it from a different angle where you don't even need a wallet to connect. You can just start to search. You can start to read. Like There's a crypto-less onboarding exper- like, experience. It just happens to be powered by crypto, but that is what's like kind of allowing those things to flourish. Um, so... Yeah, like what does it look like for the mainstream to get here? I still think like it's hard to say. It's I think it's definitely years, but the fact that you're starting to have like the uh, like the kind of early pockets of crypto move across is like a really strong signal. And I think it's it's much more likely that every person will be like a crypto person versus like crypto being it's like everyone will be a crypto person in the same way that everyone's like a computer person now. You don't really think about it in that way. It's just the barrier to entry has dropped. And there's like enough value to be provided that for whatever one-time onboarding cost exists, it's actually willing to just cross that, cross that threshold. Like I was saying, it's like 
uh, there was one point where no one has a phone. Now everyone has a phone. There was one point where, you know, no one had a computer. Eventually everyone got a computer. I think the wallet is that similar leap here with some headwinds where it's like Apple is kind of restrictive and it is still, still hard to get your first crypto. Um, so you don't say, yeah, <laughs> not Apple. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I guess it'll take years, but I think the ingredients are there. You know, what's your take on the royalties dispute that has embroiled the NFT space in recent months? You know, we saw mm. some marketplaces either reject royalties or make them optional. Um, artists are fighting back, creators are fighting back, and we're starting to see, you know, some movement in that direction, some tools. You know, what, what's been your perspective on that? Yeah. So I would say royalties were one of the most compelling features of crypto to artists coming into this space because that's been such a long-standing problem in the traditional art world um, or music world or you know any kind of creative art form, royalties has always been like a really big issue. So the fact that I think um, the early NFT wave kind of touted royalties as such a, such a strong feature, and it did work for some period of time, has kind of led us to this like moment right now where the actual functionality of those royalties is being very real, like it's being challenged in practice and we're having to rethink like, well, how does this actually, what does artist ownership look like in this context? So, you know, uh, basically what happened is like a new number of marketplaces came onto the market and allowed collectors and traders to intentionally avoid royalties. And then when you see royalties ranging from five to 20%, that has a huge impact on how, you know, speculative traders kind of relate to these things, because if they can save five to 20% on a trade, that's, that's massive. So we've seen net effective royalties go down over time. Then OpenSea came out with this new operator filter registry as like kind of an, an answer to go, well, hey, artists can now start to blacklist or block um, marketplaces that don't honor these royalties. But in practice, there's a million ways in crypto which you can wrap and change and skirt these royalties. So we kind of keep ending up back into a similar position of it's is going down to zero. So I think the moment we're in now is how can we start to think of new royalty models that don't rely on secondary trading, but actually start to allow artists to retain ownership of the collection themselves up front. So it's instead of like, hey, it's 5% on every secondary trade the artist actually just owns five to 10 of the supply alongside the community and allow them to, to sell that as the price increases is one option. Or there's the, the noun style option, which is um, as the collection is growing over time and is inflating over time, a certain amount of that new supply is going back to the original creators in that exact same, um, same currency, which is the NFT. Uh, which works quite well, but it's obviously very early and it's a very big departure from, I think, the first kind of wave we've gone through, which is just assuming that secondary resale royalties are going to exist. Um, so I, I guess it's like I'm very sympathetic to the artist side because it was one of the largest selling points and now that's being challenged. But I'm also curious to see us like move from the more skeuomorphic royalty side into like, well, how can we create new forms of equity with the things that already exist? It's just going to take a bit of, a bit of work. Um, with the mixed variable of like, I don't know where the open season, the blurs actually net out on their implementation because they have the direct incentive to compete with each other for market share. So there's like, I just feel like there's collateral damage in that process generally, which 
which sucks. Um, so yeah, we've been focused on the primary market side and like, how do we just help people take new forms of ownership outside of royalties? Because it looks like those royalties are trending downwards no matter what. Hmm. Yeah, it's a good point you make about um, that artists kind of were brought into crypto thanks to the royalties idea. Um, on the same note, and I know I keep going back to kind of the the initial NFT boom, but I think that that's still in some ways, it got a lot of people in, but it also like casts a pall over anything that involves NFT still, because you have the, the people who, you know, they watched the volume go down or the prices go down. And so they just point and say, you know, oh, NFTs imploded or, you know, all those stories screaming about the volume fell 97%. Um, and I guess I want to ask you, you know, in some ways that was probably a positive while it was happening for NFT marketplaces like Zora. Um, on the whole now, you know, and it's been a, a number of months since that kind of mania, like the PFP mania. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that that time was uh, more positive or negative for the space? I mean, there's some damage done, but also a lot of companies wouldn't be here without that that stretch of months where everyone was buying up and collecting NFTs. Yeah, I think you'd have to say it's overwhelmingly net positive. I mean, you still have had artists who've made more than they ever had in the Web2 construct. Mm. Um, and that's still true to this day. I think you that we saw hundreds of thousands, if not millions of new people get onboarded to crypto because it was resonating in a way that DeFi never did or you know, um, Ethereum or Bitcoin never did. So the, the level of crypto awareness absolutely shot up. Um, and then I think we've seen... A, a whole bunch of new and imaginative economic models and tools and protocols that kind of came out of that huge phase of experimentation. Um, and even like um, mental models too, like like creative commons being a default for artists is not something that we, it was often done at all <laughs> pre NFT wave, but now post NFT wave, like that's actually becoming an increasing, increasingly common thing, which is just like a big deal in and of itself. Um, and yeah, as with all manias, I think, as I was saying earlier, like uh, misaligned expectations and realities kind of all get lost in the lost in the sauce. And I think things go wrong and really wrong and you have opportunistic bad actors who will take control of it. But I think we're coming out the other side of it with like fundamentally new and powerful technology. Now just comes the hard part of like, how do we make it really easy to use and understand and how do we, and where can we confidently say it does work? And then more importantly, where does it not work so we don't make those mistakes again? So I'd say it's massively net positive, but it's in the part where it's like, it's going to take us a couple of years to get, get on the other side of the, the, the end of a mania like that, for sure. And as we're wrapping up here, you know, I wanted to ask what you think the impact is of the FTX fallout on NFTs and Web3 culture. Uh, you know, the far-reaching damage included NFTs stuck on FTX. FTX's marketplace. So it's it's not just about money. Yeah, I would say a learning moment. Um, for NFTs specifically, like now, now uh, collectors have a, a hard and real example of what it looks like if the metadata is not stored correctly or is centralized. So now maybe there's more of an immune response where in the future when you're looking to buy an NFT, you're going to check if it's stored on like a centralized S3 Amazon bucket or is it on IPFS? And like, that's a quite a hard thing, but if you understand the implications of it, then you it's gonna inform how you, you collect these things in the future. Um, and that's probably the main lesson I would say. Like FTX, I think generally struggled to move itself 
or expand into the NFT ecosystem for whatever reason. So I think like, that's like the one as Coinbase is too, a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like who would have thought like, you don't want to look at art on like a bank or an exchange. Like it's a radical thought. Um, but yeah, I'd say that's like the main, the main learning, um, from FTX as it relates to NFTs. And then I'd say there's just the overarching general skepticism and, um, wariness with crypto at large when you have such a public failure like that where it's like oh maybe i i don't find this ecosystem or this tool set as compelling because i've seen just a horrible failure play out so i'd say just like general new entrant confidence and artist confidence is probably being impacted by that for sure as has most people in crypto probably from from that yeah i think we're all navigating that not only the builders and the entrepreneurs and the business leaders but the yep. journalists who cover this stuff you know mm -hmm. Um, but it'll get built back up. Uh, Jacob, we've been grilling you on all things, you know, Zora, NFT. We always like to end on, you know, a, a more personal note. How did you first come into this space? Do you still remember like your origin moment when you first heard about crypto or was it, you know, did it start with NFTs? What, what brought you in here? Are you like a lifer, a true believer? What, yeah. what excites you about the space? I remember it distinctly. I was lucky enough in 2012 to have a college professor talk about Bitcoin. And the thing that blew my mind was like, Bitcoin was fascinating, but I was like, wait, you're telling me you can create a crypto, like a currency for anything? So my mind immediately was just like, oh, you can create a currency for an idea. Like that's, that's insane. That's amazing. And that's just being, I feel like the thread I've been pulling on all this time, which is, oh, you can create, uh, if you can create a currency for an idea, that means anyone around the world could organize around it and maybe that idea has a greater chance of success than it does in the current way that we work together, which is like traditional companies. I was like, I was in Sydney, Australia. I was like, it's kind of hard to do a startup here. <laughs> um, but like, maybe if I can create a cryptocurrency for it, it's going to have a better shot. Um, and I guess I've just been like going down that rabbit hole, which it took me, it took me to like colored coins using counterparty on Bitcoin, which was like a very early and rudimentary token system on Bitcoin. It's like impossible to build. Then Ethereum came out and I was like, oh shit, I could probably build with this. This is great. This is 10 times or hundred times easy to build. And then the Ethereum wave that kind of got me into Ethereum. I was tweeting about it the whole time. Uh, that ended up helping me. I ended up working at Coinbase for a few years. So that was like a whole journey. And then I guess um, when I really started to grok and understand Uniswap and the power and compound and protocols and seeing things like Uniswap, like Uniswaps show up, I was like, oh, like, I think what I was trying to do with like counterparty and colored coins is way easier and much more possible and well-timed now, which is, I think how the Coinbase Azora jump happened. So, um, yeah, the first spark was just, wait, you can create a, a currency for an idea and <laughs> it's just been that whole thing for, for, I guess, like the better part of a decade now. Uh, so yeah, it's been a, been a wild ride, but, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the starting point. Is there much of a crypto scene in Australia? At the time, These certainly days? not. Now I'm not <laughs> sure. I've, it, yeah, I, the Ethereum Australia meetup in Sydney was like 10 to 15 people at the time. This is, I guess, like 2016, late 2015. I think when I went back to Australia in like 2017, 2018, when the first DeFi boom was happening, it was like a few hundred. I'm sure that for sure it's a huge, massive thing in Sydney now, but, and there's like some amazing builders there, but, uh, yeah, I count kind of Twitter as the the global location for for crypto, and there's little hubs everywhere. Um, but yeah, Sydney's got some stuff going on. We've got a small Zora office there, so yeah, that, that's part that's contributing to it. Yeah.
All right, Jacob Horn, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. GM is a Decrypt podcast, co-hosted by me, Dan Roberts, Stacey Elliott, Stephen Graves, Kate Irwin, and Andrew Hayward, and produced by Zach Edelman. Make sure you check our website, Decrypt.co, whenever a new episode comes out for the video version, and subscribe to GM wherever you podcast. GM. GM.